this is Tom Fox. Welcome to the award-winning FCPA Compliance Report, the longest-running podcast in compliance. In this part one of a special two-part episode, I'm joined by Mike Volkoff, and we take a look back into the FCPA and compliance year 2022. We take a look at some of the important cases, some of the important issues, take a deep dive into the Monaco memo, and ask, why is the heat on for compliance in 2023? I know you'll enjoy this special episode. Some of the specific topics we take up in this episode are the Monaco Memo, the Stericycle and KT FCPA enforcement actions, the upcoming trial of two cognizant executives and what it may mean for internal investigations, and key individuals prosecuted in 2022. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. Happy New Year to everybody. We had a great holiday, and I always like to bring in the new year with my good friend, colleague, esteemed practitioner in the legal area, my good friend, Tom Fox. Tom, thanks for joining me today for a discussion of last year, but everybody looks forward to your views, your sort of perspective here. So thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Mike. And Tom, I think we were going to look back on 2022 and the FCPA, enforcement and compliance issues, and just to tee it up a little bit, I always like to do this review. I think it's good to have a good measure, and I think you and I have recorded several of these over the year during year end. But I wanted to just start first with a little bit of some high-level observations from each of us, and then we can go on to maybe talk about some of the cases and then some of the compliance enforcement policy changes that came about this year. In general, I thought this was a really interesting year, lots of changes, which we'll talk about from the enforcement standpoint. But I do think this was a year where sort of the administration put in place its policy, its approach to how it's going to handle these cases, as well as other white-collar issues. And now they're starting to roll cases out, and we have a big finish here at the end with a B settlement and the Honeywell settlement. But in general, the numbers are a little bit higher this year, Tom, than last year, in that we have DOJ brought corporate enforcement actions or settlements involving five defendants, five companies. The SEC and the CFTC had eight. So they had three other cases where they acted alone. We also had two declinations, uh, that being Saffron, which happened at the end of the year with Disgorgement and Jardine Lloyd. And we saw two cases in which we had the appointment of corporate monitors. That was Glencore and Stericycle. And then we had two cases where we had corporate monitors extended for a year, that being Ericsson and Mobile Telesystems, the Russian company that had its corporate monitorship extended. One other point I thought is we have we continue to see a lot of criminal prosecutions of individuals. And I think, if anything, when we get to the talk about the corporate enforcement policy changes, a lot of that is directed at increasing those numbers. And so this year we had 24, and last year we had about 26 or so. I think that number will probably go up. But we've never had another as big a year as the year with Goldman Sachs in Malaysia, and that to me is just a big year. But 
This, I think, was still an interesting year. Those were my thoughts. What was your sort of thought as we closed out the year and looked to this year, Tom? Mike, you're right. We did not see the paucity of cases we've seen in the last couple of years. But I would say it was a relatively slow couple of years based on what we saw 2012 to 2016. We saw 1.3, almost 1.4 billion in fines and penalties collected. We had some interesting cases really from the compliance professional perspective. And one of the things that I want to shout out to the DOJ on this podcast, Mike, is I think they're getting much better in communicating to the greater compliance community through the resolution documents, whether they be a DPA, MPA, recently a declination, whether it's the information of what they looked at to assess the case in front of them, but also in a way that allows the compliance professional to look at that and glean not only what the DOJ is thinking and how they may approach things, but I think some real action items that you can use to benchmark your own compliance program. Because of those last points, I thought this year was very interesting with some cases literally over 1.1 billion to Glencore down to seven point, or excuse me, 6.3 million to KT Corp. But both of those cases had numerous points that a compliance professional can study and should utilize in their compliance programs going forward. Typically, we don't see the extensions of monitorships or settlement documents. We have in the past occasionally, but I thought it was significant. Erickson was very significant where the monitorship was extended, and we don't know if if the fine and penalty will be changed or increased based upon their conduct during the investigation and during the DPA, and then mobile telesystems, as you noted. Also in the criminal prosecutions, one thing, Mike, we are seeing and we continue to see a lot of prosecutions coming out of just a handful of cases over the years. Petavesa, Vital, Odebrecht, Sergeant Marine come to mind, but also Petrobras used to give us individual cases or individuals who have been prosecuted. Petavesa, I think we would all agree, is the company that keeps on giving. And so we may never see the end of Petavesa investigations. <laughs> that company was so corrupt. I remember at one point it would cost a Rolex to get a meeting uh, with a wow. mid-level manager. So that tells you the, uh, the level of corruption. And under the Maduro administration, I don't think that has changed any a significant number of individual prosecutions, but as you have noted, targeted or around a core number of cases, but I think we'll continue to see that. At the end, Mike, I'd like to touch on the changes to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy as expressed in the Monaco Doctrine and uh, elucidated more fully in the Monaco Memo. I think there's some important things in there for the compliance professional as well. Absolutely. There's no doubt that the change in administrations, no matter what your politics are, we view this as as an institution, the SEC is an institution. There's no doubt that there has been change in the enforcement perspective, but also, yet again, Tom, going back to years and years ago when we used to just read over these settlements and try to glean the tea leaves of where we're going, I feel like they, they're communicating a lot more, but usually when they communicate, it means there's more work for the compliance professional. But at least you're right that we're getting some clear communications coming out. But this administration seems bent on ramping up not only FCPA enforcement, but white-collar enforcement in general. What do you think in terms of the overall picture like that? 
the uh, that's certainly the message they have conveyed. The thing that and the reason I spent some time talking about the core number of cases which have evolved into individual prosecutions, all Ubrash, Sergeant Marine and uh, Petrobras is, and we're going to talk about one other that uh, I'm going to lean on you a little bit for more expertise right. involving a former Goldman Sachs employee. And I think we should acknowledge the excellent prosecutorial skills of the Department of Justice in convicting Roger Ong earlier this year, former managing director of Goldman Sachs in the one 1MDB scandal. But until we start seeing other cases, I'm not sure where we can assess the individual prosecutions. Really outside the scope of this podcast probably is a case involving two individuals, the former CEO and the general counsel, who've been criminally indicted, and uh, they are fighting, as part of their defense, the internal investigation brought by this is cognizant, uh, their former right? employer, the, the CEO, Technologies. The CEO and GC right. are about to go to trial, I think, early 2023 or something. They know. are, except they filed a motion to have all of the internal investigation done by the company thrown, and their claim is basically a Fourth Amendment claim. These were done at the request and or direction of the Department of Justice. They should be treated as government investigations, and none of the criminal procedural protections that you would typically get in a government investigation were in place. And so that's going to be, that's a question which has troubled the federal judiciary and some other cases, Judge Radoff. Breakoff has been prominent in questioning that. But if the deputization of internal investigations to outside counsel, private lawyers such as yourself or myself, becomes a part of a sort of a government investigation, that's going to change the dynamics of an investigation quite a bit. I guess it leaves me up in the air about individuals. We have certainly heard that since the AIDS memo was first announced in twenty. September of 2015, and the department always says they're going after individuals. So yeah, we'll see. No, and the Cognizant case raises really difficult issues. And I think it was Judge McCann, McMahon, she's chief judge, I think, either, I think it was the Eastern District of New York. And she raised real issues about the outsourcing of these investigations to big firms, firms like ourselves, small firms, whatever, and that we are acting at the direction like as agents for prosecutors. I think you and I spoke about this issue five years ago and saying this is eventually going to come to the courts in a big way. And I think it is now in the Cognizant case. So we got to watch that for this year. That's going to be an interesting trial. That's for sure. Okay, Tom, let's let's turn to some of the more interesting cases. We're not going to talk about every case because we don't have four hours to go through all of this. But let's, one case I know you were interested in, and there actually are a lot of good lessons in this one as well, was D Corp, which was just a settlement with the SEC, Justice Settlement, where they paid $6.3 million to resolve FCPA charges. This was, I think, the first case of the year for in, in the FCPA arena. But what did you think of that case, and what were some of your observations about well, Mike, I, I'll go ahead and plug my uh, next book, which will be coming out in a week or two, which is the FCPA Year in Review 2022. And I tried to name the cases I wrote about. And this one is bribery the old-fashioned way, cash, bags of cash. So it's good to get back to the basics sometimes, Mike. <laughs> and I think that applies professionals don't always remember that there is a pretty basic way to pay a bribe. And it can be a bag of cash. 
It can be a shake of a hand with a $50 bill in it or anything in between. And KT reminds us of that. So sometimes the simple little ways are the better ways. So that was one lesson. But there were two other lessons that I thought were interesting. And, And I don't know, Mike, how much your practice is international companies, meaning not U.S. domestic companies. But this is a great case for every lawyer who deals with an international company. KT Corporation is a South South Korean company with, I think they were, had ADRs in the United States, American Depository Registrars. And they had as minimal contact with the United States as possible. Yet they were embroiled in a major FCPA enforcement action. Now, the country of South Korea prosecuted some individuals in this case, separate and apart from the DOJ prosecution. But with really very minimal contacts, you can make your company subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And I don't think really foreign, many foreign companies, certainly unsophisticated, not multi-billion dollar companies, they don't fully appreciate that. Right. But the other, in addition to the bribery scheme where it literally was bags of cash, That was in Korea, South Korea. And there was another set of bribery schemes in Vietnam. And Mike, what I thought was interesting here was you and I have talked about for years the dangers in joint ventures, or not the dangers, the risk in joint ventures, and how you need to manage those risks going forward. But joint ventures are only one form of business relationship. You can have any number of ventures going forward. It can be a formal joint venture with a contractual agreement, but it can be a teaming agreement. Companies can come together for a bid. Companies can pair up for a part of a bid. Companies can associate informally for a full bid or a part of a bid. Now, I know you look at these issues quite often from your perspective as an anti-competitive lawyer or in a competition part of your practice, But compliance professionals, I don't think, realize the number of business ventures that can be created, which are limited by the following. Only the imagination of the business unit guys. And that's what we had in Vietnam. We had different types of business ventures coming, companies coming together with KT to put bids in. And one or more of the business venture partners, not joint venture partners, teaming agreements or some other business ventures, formal or informal, were involved in the bribery scheme. So it just goes to show that the compliance function needs to understand what types of arrangements your business units are getting into. And simply because they do not enter into a formal joint venture, which may have its own protocol for going through the compliance function, does not mean that there are other types of business ventures your business folks are entering into in high-risk jurisdictions. Yeah, I definitely, the Vietnam story definitely underscores that. The funny part, funny, we've got to do this job with a sense of humor, I always say, was the way they got the cash was that two senior executives paid these huge bonuses to senior management. And then all the executives had to come back and return the cash to the executives, portion of their bonus in cash, and then the money was stored in the CEO's safe. You talk about culture and C-suite risks, you're in trouble when your CEO is running the bribery scheme. Um, but I thought it was, a, and your warning in terms of a contact, when you have ADRs, then you're subject to all the reporting requirements and your internal controls. And that's what 
and the investigation here went through KT's internal controls with a fine-tooth comb, and particularly in Vietnam. So I thought that was really interesting. It's a really interesting case. It reminds us of our past with gift cards and the use of gift cards to pay bribes. And uh, I don't hear as much about gift cards these days. This just goes to show you that we still run into that risk out there, and particularly in certain countries, gift cards may still come up. So anyway, let's move on to, uh, I think, another important case, which was cycle. And uh, Tom, I just wanted to point this up because I know you've written about this case and really dug into it, as we all do. But uh, this was about $81 million paid out by Stericycle with a three-year deferred prosecution agreement. But I thought this was important for the year because this showed a different tone on one important issue, and that was the compliance monitor. And what was interesting to me is they appointed a two-year independent compliance monitor. But if it, And the reasons now, it's like they raised the bar. And this is an example of what you were saying, Tom, about how they're being clearer about when what standards DOJ is going to apply, particularly when it comes to the compliance monitor, is here Stericycle had enhanced its compliance program, but they had not tested it and completed the testing of it to verify that it was now effective. And because of that, now the bar is you would not only have to enhance your program, but now you have to test it or else, like Stericycle, because they hadn't done the testing of it, they were given a two-year compliance monitor. So that was my sort of takeaway. But what was what were your thoughts on the case? Because I know that you found this pretty interesting. Yeah, Mike, I did. Because to call Stericycle a company with a dysfunctional culture of compliance really insults companies that really do have a dysfunctional culture because (laughs) these guys were beyond the pale in terms of a culture of noncompliance throughout their Latin American business unit. Uh, They had spreadsheets where they recorded their bribe payments and estimated ROI based upon the bribe payments. That's a level of sophistication. We've seen that. We saw that in the sons and daughters or princeling cases, hiring cases in the Far East. But Stericycle really took it to a new level in Latin America. They had some great code words for bribery and corruption or bribery payments. In Brazil, it was little pieces of chocolate. In Argentina, it was incentive payments. And in Mexico, it was cookies. They had some interesting code words that have now entered the lexicon as well. The Latin American business unit was as corrupt as any other unit we have seen in multiple FCPA enforcement actions over the years, Mike, yet, and literally all the way up to the corporate office in the United States, yet the company was able to get a 25% discount off the bottom range of the sentencing guidelines. And that's a clear theme we have seen in multiple FCPA enforcement actions in 2022. And the department has made clear that even if you have a business unit that is based on corruption, if you extensively cooperate and thoroughly remediate, even if you don't self-disclose, you can get a big discount. And for Stericycle, this was, a, I think I estimated about a $40 million discount Mm. because of the 25% off the low end of the, uh, the sentencing range. 
They did not self-disclose, so they didn't get credit for that. But time and time again, the DOJ has communicated that they, they will, and this is Rod Rosenstein, corporate enforcement policy that came out of the FCPA pilot program. You can get real credit and you will save real dollars, no matter how bad it was, if you can turn it around. And as you noted, even with the thorough remediation the company put in place, even though they hadn't tested it and did have to pick up a monitor because of that, they the DOJ still gave them full credit, leading to the 25% discount. So I thought the Stericycle was interesting for that. And there was one other thing, and it was the following, Mike. Near the end of the years of bribery schemes, the Stericycle Latin American Business Unit tried to stop paying bribes. And the basically the middleman said, you keep paying or we go to the DOJ. And if there's not a perfect example of once you cross that line and engage in criminal conduct, the criminals have you. This was the case. That's a fact. That, that's a uh, fact I didn't know. And that's, that is amazing when you think about it. Yeah. So that message is important because even if you do want to clean up your own house, if you have it self-disclosed and uh-huh. that's threat over your head, that's an important message. We don't talk about that enough, I think, but it, it was an interesting point from the Stereocycle case. But once again, this was as corrupt a company, a culture of corruption as we have seen, maybe even more than any of the other companies in 2022 enforcement actions yet. Once again, 25% discount off the bottom end of the sentencing guidelines. And even if the other point, and it's hard to sometimes figure it out from the calculations under the sentencing guidelines, but there's a range of fines from a low to a high. And the DOJ can assess it in the middle. But if you get a discount, you're typically going to get a discount off the low end of that range. So it's almost a double discount. Yeah, that's true. And we, we haven't seen a case, which is, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, where the discount was taken from the middle of the range. And, and that's AB, I think. And uh, But that can have serious consequences, like you just said, in terms of tens of millions of dollars in terms of the difference. So that we didn't see like anybody earn a 50% discount this year. We did see obviously two declinations with good disgorgement, but that was interesting. The other point, I think I want to emphasize one point you made about the culture here. And I do think that DOJ in its guidance has talked more openly now about the culture of compliance and ethics and the importance of that in many ways in many areas. But in particular, I think a lot of the cases that they brought this year, they have spent more time in describing an environment in which this activity occurred and misconduct occurred. And I think that they're painting with a broad brushstroke to show us what the culture was like. To have a senior executive maintaining a spreadsheet with contracts they win, bribes they pay, and just tracking everything and how that permeated Every part of the office is was to me. So your comment is stericycle is shows the culture issues, and I think that's a big deal. So I think it's part of DOJ's G, and it reflects some of their priorities these days. While we're talking about culture and defective cultures, let's go to the big Kahuna of the year, Tom, which was, and I think if there was anything that sent the message that DOJ is back 
and that this was not going to be like the year before, was the release of the Glencore decision. And I'll turn this over to you because I know you've written a lot about this and uh, spoken a lot about it. And I would love to hear your sort of views because this this was the biggest case of the year in, in terms of DOJ's enforcement. So, Mike, you're right. This was a massive case, multiple enforcements across multiple countries with multiple bribery schemes. We had our first CFTC settlement covering bribery and price and market manipulation with the DOJ, who pled guilty to FCPA and price and market manipulation, parallel resolutions in the United Kingdom and in Brazil, I believe. And the total fines and penalties, a little over $1.1 million for FCPA violations, or $700 million, I should say, and then 441 for price and market manipulation leading to the $1.1 billion. Over a 10-year period, Glencore paid over $100 million to third parties, knowing that these portion of these monies would use to be paid bribe officials in Nigeria, Cameroon, Ivory Coast, Equatorial Guinea, Brazil, Venezuela, and, of course, the DRC. Um, it truly had a lawless culture that was committed to profit really at any cost. All countries involved, as I noted, Glencore in West Africa relied on two significant third parties to pay $52 million in bribes in Nigeria. The DRC, this was around mining operations and Brazil with Petrobras and the sale of gas. A lot to unpack here. Once again, start with the point I ended with on the stericycle matter, as bad as this was, and this was very bad, companies still got a discount. And they got a discount because of the steps that they took in terms of their cooperation once they finally got religion, and then the remedial efforts. The DOJ found the remedial efforts wanting because the company had not fully tested its compliance program but Glencore made a lot of strides to try to improve their culture. They published their first ethics and compliance report, which really put their compliance program under the light of day, which is about the best thing you can have. We do have two monitors here, one for the UK subsidiary and one appointed in conjunction with the DOJ settlement. This was the first case we had for CO certification, although it had been previously announced. And so the Glencore CEO will have to certify to the effectiveness, reasonable effectiveness at the of the company's compliance program. The, I'm going to leave the commodity price manipulation to you because I think that's probably more in your wheelhouse. But lots to unpack. It was a massive action, years of investigation, payments to multiple countries, and as about as big a case as we've had since Goldman Sachs, Mike. Yeah, this was a huge case, and we had a warning sign. We knew about this investigation, Tom. I never knew it was this big. I recall when Anthony Stimler from the U.K. pled guilty in the United States and was clearly cooperating and helped them to build the case. But this, I didn't realize the size and scope of this was going to put it into the billion-dollar settlement. Now, I get the $440 million was for the fraud, uh, the commodities fraud, and that involved using, they were basically playing against benchmark prices and trying to manipulate benchmark pricing 
in Los Angeles and Houston for a smaller commodity type of bunker oil or bunker gas that's used in in the United States or used in ports. And they, it was a pretty sophisticated scheme, though, and they put a lot of work into it to manipulate the benchmark prices. So they paid a price for that. I also think, look here, this was not even a close call in terms of a monitor, and we got a three-year monitor, and I think it's also important this was, again, a chief compliance officer certification case, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But again, we're looking at a culture that was, you have to admit, reading through the facts, it just went on and on. And it was just clearly people had to know about it. Clearly people were aware of the conduct. And I even love the fact that in the DRC, they ended up paying bribes to a judge and a plaintiff to dismiss legal action against the company, which just shows you how they could derail so many of the sort of institutions in the countries that they operated in. But this was no no case to me has ever matched Goldman Sachs in Malaysia, because I've always said that was the case that the FCPA was built for. That was the sort of quintessential case. But this one comes close to them in terms of reaching that point. And I think the implications for the commodity trading industry as well, energy industry, is we, we've seen VDAL, now we have Glencore, and there's lots of risks because they're dealing with state-owned enterprises and they're dealing in these foreign countries where, for energy products, oil, gas, whatever. So I think we're going to see more in the industry fall. It's just a question of when. But Glencore is definitely is always going to be there. And it, a fascinating case. Let's turn to another case. And I, sometimes these SEC alone cases where in the Oracle case, I think is one of the most interesting cases. But one important fact, and I don't know if you've heard anything on this any differently than I have, but Oracle settled with the SEC, but we don't know if DOJ has an investigation or if DOJ declined to prosecute or But what happened in this case, Tom, is here's our first SEC recidivist in the year, this for this year, where Oracle, I had always found fascinating it, the case it had 10 years ago, and it showed to me this case 10 years ago against Oracle, showed to me the power of internal controls as an enforcement mechanism. Because in 2012, Oracle paid $2 million to the SEC for creating millions of dollars in off-the-books accounts at its India subsidiary. Now, the off-the-books accounts were held by their third-party distributors. They never proved in 2012, or they didn't have evidence to prove the bribery, but they were prosecuted for internal controls deficiencies. So yet again, here we go. Ten years later, we see Oracle now paying $23 million to the SEC to resolve bribery allegations in Turkey, India, and the UAE. $8 million was in disgorgement and a $15 million penalty. But to me, Tom, I don't know if you've heard anything or you have any insight in terms of whether DOJ, to me it was curious because we can usually find some reference from the company like, DOJ declined this, or DOJ is continuing to investigate this. But I've never heard anything on this, and I wonder if you have in terms of the Oracle case, what DOJ is doing. Yeah, Mike, I have not, and that's one of the great unanswered questions from 2022. Typically, if a company receives a declination, particularly a U.S. public company, that's deemed a material piece of information, and they will disclose that. If they get a declination, perhaps with some 
justification that they're at least pleased with that result. We have not heard anything one way or the other. I find that very interesting as well. One of the questions Matt Kelly and I discussed for 2023 is when, if at all, will we hear from the Department of Justice in this case? This case in many ways was very instructive, but also very troubling, Mike. It was troubling because in the 2022 case, Oracle got involved or got into FCPA hot water over violations in the UAE, Turkey, and India. Well, in India, it was basically a very similar bribery scheme to the one from the 2011 right. FCPA enforcement action. So not only do you have a recidivist, you've got a recidivist, recidivist redo, yeah. as we say in South Texas. Yeah. Redo. Redo. Yeah. Uh, redo. Yeah. And that involved distributors, once again, reminding us of some of the intricacies of internal controls, particularly around distributors. The other thing, Mike, that I just have to raise is that Oracle engaged in bribery and corruption over gifts, travel, and entertainment. Yeah. And you and I have been doing this about 20 years, and... About 18 years ago, the DOJ set the rules right. on gifts, travel, and entertainment. And they everybody knows them. They were in two opinion releases. Everybody understands. And when you send a foreign official to visit your home office for legitimate business reasons, they got to go to the home office. Right. And here they sent business or officials, Turkish government officials, to Los Angeles to visit Oracle's home office. And in one week, they were there for a, quote, 15-minute meeting, end quote. To my utter chagrin, they probably took in a Dodger game. Hey, but they, don't get on that. They went to Disney World. Right. They went to Disneyland. They did lots of things that one would do in Los Angeles if one were a tourist. And they had had family members, Tom. How many times have we told clients, no spouse, no children, just the official themselves? And here they are right in the heartland of a violation. To have that kind of violation is just how that got through compliance is just beyond me. Right. But it gives us, Mike, a really good teachable moment or lessons learned that you and I can talk about for the next year. Guys, please look at your gift travel and entertainment policy and see if you're getting the information that your how your business folks are spending travel money and per diem money and entertainment money for those you're bringing to your corporate office. But the bigger question is the one you started with, Mike, which is we have a recidivist with the same or similar conduct some 10 years later, where, if at all, it's a DOJ on this, are they going to put something in place? Will Oracle pay a penalty for being a recidivist? Or is a civil action now over 10 years ago going to be relevant, even though it does have similarities to today? All open questions, in my mind, all good questions. If... The DOJ declines to prosecute or some something else. My request to the department and my hope from them is that they will communicate to us as well as I think they did in the AB case, which was not a recidivist, but a three-time FCPA violator. Why fine and penalty was, I thought, as low as it could be. And when we get to that case, I'll talk in a little more depth, but if Oracle gets a declination, an MPA or a DPA, 
I just hope the DOJ explains the reasoning to us so that we can understand when they release a memo and a new doctrine that says we're going to punish recidivists and they don't punish recidivists, explain to us why you haven't done it and allow us to understand your reasoning so that we can communicate that out to the greater compliance community. Yeah, all good points, Tom. I wanted to drill down just on two issues because you mentioned the gifts, travel, and entertainment. I thought, and I would recommend to anybody who has works in a compliance spot, has an anti anti-corruption program and is involved with distributors because Oracle is a really good teaching moment to everyone because there were two things that were done that were really interesting that the Oracle employees came up with. And one was they used a discount scheme where they would give discounts, pass discounts on to the third party, let's say, and then the third party would keep some of the discounted funds from the customer or would not pass discount all the way to the customer. And this was the way that they basically were able to fund the slush funds that were then used to pay bribes. Unlike the 2012 case, this case, they they did pay bribes and they were caught paying bribes. Now, to me, and what's also interesting is Oracle had internal controls set up for discount approvals. And what occurred was that the approval process was being not complied with a culture of compliance sort of attitude. What happened is people would put in things like, we need this discount to meet competition. We need this because of this. We need this. And they also did not provide the required documentation. So if you're going to write an internal control about something and it's an important risk, make sure you follow it and adhere to it. And in this case, there were just basically false representations or inadequate justifications that were provided. And this led to funds in significant amounts of money that were created for purposes of paying these bribes, including the trip to the United States. One other point is this is a great example, this case, of how marketing fund allowances can be used to fund bribery. Again, at the managerial level within the local country, they were authorized under their internal controls to to pay reimbursement for marketing expenses incurred by the distributor. And yet again, no documentation was provided. The managers were just approving it as a way to get them money. And so we had sham marketing reimbursement payments being used. So Oracle, along with Tom's point about the gifts, meals, and entertainment, they, these are great moments to double-check your controls in the area when dealing with distributors, particularly in the software industry that relies significantly upon distributors. But anyways, those I found it a fascinating case, and uh, I think it's a great teaching moment for companies that have that set of this. All right, Tom, I think we've come to the end. This is Thank you. This has been just terrific. But 2023 is going to be an interesting year, and uh, hopefully I can get you back maybe halfway through for a mid-year review to see where we are, and we can count up the cases then and point out what we think is been interesting. A couple of things I wanted to plug for Tom as my good friend and colleague. Number one, he is now the best-selling child compliance officer, author. Tom, congratulations on your new kids' book on being, and if you have it, it'd be great to see it, the, compli- the chief compliance officer. There it is. Being a compliance officer is awesome by Tom Fox. I think the book is terrific. 
And we do look forward to your book coming out on the review of 2022. When do you expect that out, Tom? And where can people find it? And maybe we can get a link for the show notes. I'm not sure we'll have it ready by the time this pod posts, Mike, but I'll send you the link for being a compliance okay. officer. It's awesome. That is available on Amazon 2022, the year in FCPA will also be available on Amazon. And in May, LexisNexis will be publishing my compliance handbook, fourth edition. So that will be out with LexisNexis. Once again, the best single author volume on design creation and implementation of a best practice compliance program. So I continue to write, continue well, to terrific. podcast and continue to hang well, out. Well, to be part of the compliance podcast network, it's always an honor for that. And Tom, it's always great to talk with you, but uh, congratulations, by the way, I did not know you had a new handbook coming out, but I can tell you from the past handbooks, they're invaluable, the best, and we will be promoting it on our blog. And then we'll certainly get you on to talk about that when that comes out, because I, I think we need to catch up on that issue as well. Tom, all the best to you. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Oh, and if somebody wants to email you, Tom, besides reading all your books, they can also contact you how? So you can contact me via email, oxlaw.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Thomas R. Fox. The Compliance Podcast Network is compliancepodcastnetwork.net. So check out all of those resources, podcasts, and blogs. I'd love to connect with you if I'm not already connected with you. And if have any questions or want to chat, connect with me on LinkedIn or Fantastic. shoot me an Thank email. Thank you, Tom. All the best, everybody. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you again. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where we reported on the LRN acquisition of compliance learning from Thomson Reuters. You can go to the firm's website that we've linked to in the show notes to find out more and how this acquisition will really position LRN going forward. I hope you'll join me in our next episode where we begin a special two-part series with the principles of the Texas Hill Country Advisors on the FTX scandal, where we look at it from a banking risk management perspective and from an investor due diligence perspective. I know you'll enjoy the next two episodes of the FCPA Compliance Report. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.